Well, you sum what I read up, and what you have to say is that even after God's gracious deliverance and provision, Israel complained against him in the desert wilderness. And this wasn't the first time. Remember back in chapter 5? They've been making bricks, and they've been making bricks. And then Moses and Aaron came and stirred up things. And Pharaoh called them in, the leaders of Israel in, and said, okay, we're not cutting the quota of bricks, but we're not going to supply straw for you anymore. You have to get your own straw that is used in the making of the bricks. And so the people said to Moses and Aaron, you've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then in chapter 14, remember, they're trapped. Uh, Here, they're up against the the Red Sea, and and, and here comes Pharaoh and his armies. And, And they cry out to Moses and Aaron, you brought us out to the desert to die. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And then as we just read three more times, now in in fairly quick succession, they complained against God and against His good provisions. They complained about the bitter water. They complained about the bitter water. Three days into the wilderness, they've still got the memory of, of the plagues. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. God has just come and been present with them in the pillar and in the cloud. Parted the Red Sea, got them across, drowned Pharaoh and all his armies. The water's bitter. Now in their defense, they're in the desert. And they're three days into the desert. And you need water in the desert if you need anything at all. Or else you die. God knew that. He was leading them. But God made it sweet. Moses, see that, see that piece of wood over there? Throw it in that spring. And there are naturalistic explanations that are attempted for that. Well, there's something inherent in that particular piece of wood that affected the chemical makeup or whatever, the structure of the water and the Problem is, every one of them is. I've read at least three or four of them. They don't fit the text. There's something in each one of them just isn't quite right. It's a miracle. God worked through Moses and made the water sweet. And then they moved on. And when they got to where they were going, they complained about the food. They've got the plagues. They've got the Red Sea. And now they've got the bitter water made sweet, fresh in their memory. Complain about the food. You also need food in the desert. But when you look forward into chapter 17, what we read there, they had herds. So they were drinking milk and eating cheese, and, and perhaps they had meat, although, you know, every cattleman will tell you the herd is their capital, and you don't eat your capital, and uh, the offspring. Uh, or your dividends and your profits, and you don't eat a whole lot of them. But they had food. They just wanted the food they wanted. So God rained food from heaven, verse 4 of chapter 16. 
that evening, quail covered the camp. And the next morning, there was what's it on the ground all over the camp. And he gave him instructions what to do with it. And so they moved on. And they got to the next place. And there was no water. There was no well. And they complained. They've got the plagues. They've got the Red Sea. They've got the bitter made sweet water. They've got quail that covered the camp. They've got what's it every morning, every morning. Coming down from that. But they complained. There's no water. Well, you need water in the desert. Of course, of course. But when would they ever get it? That God would provide. That God was with them. And that he would provide for them. And he did. Moses goes, take your stick. You know, the stick that you turn the water of the Nile into blood with and go hit the rock. And I'm going to be there. I'm going to be on top of the rock. You hit the rock and provide water for the people. And Moses did, and he did, and they did, and the water, people had water. Here's the question. Why did they complain? These three times, the two times previous, and if you read on through the account, read up to the end of Deuteronomy, this isn't the last time they're going to complain. Somebody said Israel traveled uh, through, the, uh, through the, the desert for 40 years, griping and complaining all the way. It's maybe a little bit of an overstatement, but, but why'd they do that? I can think of three reasons. And all of them are intertwined and related. They were uncomfortable. We, we would say in 21st century uh, terms, they were outside their comfort zone. But wait a minute. What was their comfort zone? They were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves. And God freed them. Set them at liberty. Brought them out. That was what they knew. That was where they were comfortable. They knew about being slaves. What keeps you from making those changes in your life? Do you know you need to make? And then you don't. Isn't it because you're comfortable where you are? And and you know where you are? And you feel sort of safe there? Secondly, their faith was weak. And I believe their faith was weak because their memory apparently was faulty. They didn't remember all of those things that God had done, apparently, at the moment, at the moment that they were confronting their circumstances. Why didn't they just count their blessings? Same reason you and I don't. Which brings us to the third reason. Peter Enns points out 
that the reason they lacked faith was that they were self-centered. That is, they defined, he says, their situation in terms of their own perceptions. Everything revolved around them, or was supposed to. And when it didn't, they grumbled, conveniently forgetting everything they had seen God do for them. Which brings me to this observation. God's people haven't changed much, have we? We still don't like to leave our comfort zones, do we? It's what we're familiar with. It's what we know. It's what we're sure of. Our faith isn't yet what it ought to be. Despite all we've seen, God do, but that we forget in moments of stress. We're the center of our universe, are we not? Everything's supposed to revolve around me. And when it doesn't, I, you, grumble and complain and worse. Often our perceptions are in fact misperceptions. And so they give rise to false expectations. So for instance, we often look to material possessions to bring happiness and then we fall into complaining and and covetousness when we don't have them. But someone else does. Now the embarrassing part. I can give you three examples uh, that actually spread out into over eight or twelve events. Every one of which took place at the corner of Starring Lane and Highland Road in the last two years. They involve three things. A Porsche, a Maserati, and a Corvette. The owners of which drove them, generally speaking, south on Highland. I don't know how they got north on Highland. But they drove south on Highland. And at various times, like I say 8, 10, 12, I don't know how many times, one or the other of them would drive past the intersection, through the intersection of Starring and Highland. And I would be sitting there starring at the red light. And this silver Porsche would pass by, or this black Maserati, or this sharpest red Corvette I have ever seen. Candy apple red, but square or something. And I sat there in my Chevy Avea. <laughs> And every one of the guys, those three guys driving those three cars for my age, or well, look like it anyway. And I would sit there, and all of a sudden, I just was overcome every time with the thought of how much better life would be if that was me. And that was my Porsche, my Maserati, my Corvette. 
promise you. I just obsessed over it. Despite the fact, despite the fact that when I drove up to that intersection, I was perfectly happy in my way. But even worse, despite the fact that when I bought that Aveo, I was looking at a Camaro, which admittedly is not a Corvette, and it's not a Maserati, and it's not a Porsche, but I could afford a Camaro. And so I was looking at a really sharp Camaro. And I was sitting in it. And those of you who know Cecil Gray, Big Cecil and Little, either one of them, they were both standing there. And we were talking about how cool this car is, man. Ah. And then I tried to get out of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> to the delight of both friends, father and son, as they helped me out. So they were perhaps half living in another vehicle with me. Soon. Isn't that silly? Silly. By the way, postscript. I was driving up Highland one day, and the traffic stopped before I got to Starring, and it was, and it just took about 20 minutes to get to Starring. When I got up, I saw the reason. It was the most sickening sight I've ever seen. There were pieces of a black Maserati all over that intersection. They had just totaled it right there. Hit somebody, something, whatever. And then a few months later, Josh remembers this when I came in. I had the Corvette had come around the corner, and I came around behind him off of Highland. And he pulled into the dry cleaners, and I pulled up right beside him because I had stuff too. And we walked in together, and I said, Man, that is such a nice Corvette. And he looked at me like, what are you, driver of an Aveo, talking to me about my Corvette for? And all right, jerk, you know, and I go. <laughs> but we get out in our cars. And I, you know, oh, you go first, man. And so he did. He backed out. And he pulled out into starting, right into a Dodge van, and totaled that Corvette. And God delivered me from my, <laughs> took it all away. You know, all my covetousness. Now that really is silly. It's silly. No, it's not silly. What it is is sin. It's a fundamental dissatisfaction with God and his provision and his care. That's what it is. From people who profess to depend upon him for everything and yet grumble and complain and covet and rebel rebel and think how much better life would be if, if we had this stuff we think we need that we want that would change everything. Oh, I'm down to this. Silver Porsche is the only thing left now, I guess. But if I had that. It's not silly, it's sin. 
when we complain about our circumstances. We're complaining against God. And when we complain against God, we're condemning ourselves before Him. And what do you do about that? Another observation. Well, you turn to Jesus. Because that's all you've got. And Jesus is the one who passed the wilderness test. Do you remember? Matthew 4, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all, they all record him going out into the wilderness, into the desert, there to be tempted, to spend 40 days sort of mimicking the 40 years of the Israelites in the wilderness. And three times he was tempted. And three times he answered Satan, the tempter. And three times he answered him from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses, part of Moses' journal of the wilderness experience of God's people Israel. He was tempted. So are you and me. His whole life filled with temptations to disobey the Father. Just like your life and mine. The difference is, unlike us, he didn't succumb, succumb to the temptations. But he obeyed even to death, death upon a cross, death in our place for our disobedience. And so the, we read in Hebrews that Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Return to Jesus, who is the bread of life. He fed the 5,000, remember? People went off and then they came back. And he identified himself to them as the Son of Man, called for them to believe in him. And they said to him, John chapter 6, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. You believe that? That all your spiritual needs are met in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. He is the one, the Father, in His goodness, in His grace, in His mercy, in His love, has provided for you to forever take away your sins and their guilt and their punishment and to reconcile you to God, your Heavenly Father. You turn to Jesus. 
who gives the water of life. Jesus was at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which was the observance by the Israelites of how they lived, how they camped out in the wilderness. And on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then go to the end of the book. The last chapter of the last book of the Bible. And read there, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You turn to Jesus. What then? is the answer to your and my dissatisfaction with our circumstances, which is to say with God and his provision and care. Is it not this? As Paul wrote to the Romans, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray.